and welcome to the Talking Techniques podcast, the show that brings you the latest from the frontiers of the life sciences, straight from the people exploring them. I'm your host, Biotechniques Digital Editor Tristan Free, and in this podcast, I'll explore the latest developments from across the life sciences, speak to leaders in their field and people who can provide new perspectives on established topics, while examining how we can advance in the most ethical and progressive ways. In today's episode, I'll be exploring the reproducibility crisis, the ongoing issue of results in published papers frequently being very difficult and sometimes impossible for scientists to reproduce. I will ask how science has changed since this crisis was identified, why it's such a big problem and what still needs to be done to correct it. To do this, I'm joined today by two guests, Mark Raphael and Elizabeth Irons, both championing the advancement of reproducibility and working to establish new ways in which we can make life science research more reproducible. Mark works for the United States Naval Research Laboratory and began his career as a condensed matter physicist before the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan motivated a shift in focus to cell biology, focusing on the intercellular communication, cell migration and cell adhesion for applications in wound healing and disease. Elizabeth Irons is the co-founder and CEO of Science Exchange and co-director of the Reproducibility Initiative, which aims to identify and reward high-quality reproducible research by the independent validation of key experimental results. A key aspect of this initiative includes the reproducibility project, Cancer Biology. So, thank you very much both Mark and Elizabeth for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much for having us. So, Mark, first, please could you tell us a bit more about yourself uh, and also tell us about IVNV Labs. Sure. So, um, currently I work on using lithographic techniques to create quantitative uh, extracellular environments for live cell work. Um, but I'm also, uh, my group is also funded by DARPA as part of uh, a replication program in which we are paired with uh, principal investigators in real time. So they are working on, they are funded by DARPA to work on a given project, and we are under the same funding umbrella to replicate that project and work alongside of them. And that is known as IVMD, which is short for Independent Verification and Validation, which essentially means uh, verification is more in terms of biology, what we call a replication study, and validation you can think of more as a stress testing. Fantastic. And um, Elizabeth, please can you tell us a bit more about yourself and the Reproducibility Initiative? Sure. So um, by way of just quick background, I'm a cancer biologist by training and um, Science Exchange is a marketplace for outsourced research and development. And so we use that marketplace to run replication studies. And the largest replication study um, that people may have heard of is the Reproducibility Project Cancer Biology. And that project aims to replicate the key experimental results from 50 high-impact cancer biology studies. Okay, so on to the reproducibility crisis. What do you see as the most damaging aspect of this crisis? Um, Mark, if you'd like to take the lead on that question. Sure. So for, just to give you a little perspective, we've been working on this IVMD or these um, replication studies alongside the PIs for a few years now um, under this DARPA program. And what we see, it's a synthetic cell biology program. So we do a lot of, for instance, live cell work, live cell microscopy, live cell characterization. And what's really been interesting, what we find 
that the if there's irreproducibility, it's not that the experiment never worked. It's that the methodologies were so complex that whether it's the media itself, the cell media, or the techniques that are being used, that it is very difficult to reproduce it in what I would call a reasonable amount of time. And what I mean by that is an amount of time you can imagine another group in academia saying, well, how much time and money do I have to try and reproduce someone's experiment? And you might think, well, probably not much more than a few weeks because you're funded for something else. You have other things to do. And a lot of times what you find is, you know, the, the old saying, if it's not reproducible, it's not science. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't really hold. It's reproducible, but people don't have the time and the money to reproduce it. And, and that's really the challenge. And Elizabeth, from your perspective, what do you find is the, the most damaging aspect of this crisis? Yeah, I think the most challenging aspect is really um, thinking about published results as being able to take those results and build upon them very easily. And I do think there is a generally held assumption that you know, publications are our format for communicating key scientific results. And I think the work of the Reproducibility Project has actually demonstrated that it's very difficult to take published results and be able to reproduce them. Um, and I think that's uh, really the key challenge is that if we're relying on publications as a mechanism of communicating our results and allowing other teams to build and translate those results, then those are really an ineffective mechanism. Okay. And... Um... So you were saying there about how um, publications are our, our method for um, sharing results and, and building and building scientific progress. Um, the reproducibility of crisis has now been established for quite some time. Uh, many papers that are still published are found not to be re reproducible. Um, why do you think it's taking such a long time for, for science to adapt and become um, more reproducible? I think for, from my perspective... You know, I think science, particularly in the biological sciences, um, is taking a while to adapt because we are trying to use published results. And as Mark mentioned, you know, really the complexity of the methods that are used is very difficult to take, you know, a publication and actually say, okay, this is all of the different variables that um, were controlled or uncontrolled. And a lot of the time in biology, you know, there are variables that are uncontrolled or that we don't understand. And so if you're not working together with the original teams in real time, by the time you take a publication, you know, that's usually got a lag period of at least 12 months, but usually longer between when the work was conducted and when it's published. So you actually end up with, you know, very rapid degradation of the key information about what is trying to be communicated. So, for example, you may not have the original authors that did the work in the lab anymore, so you can't ask them any questions. You may not have all the information about where all of the data is deposited or where the key reagents are stored, or they may no longer exist. And so then that makes it very challenging to be able to take that publication and reproduce the results. And, um, and on the flip side, what, what do you think has worked so far in terms of improving the standard of reproducibility? I think um, so far one of the interesting things which I'd love to hear from Mark about is, you know, I'm a huge fan of the IVMV approach because I think it's really the way that you can take um, results that are being generated in real time and actually pressure test what parts of the methods, reagents, um, components of that experiment 
actually wouldn't be reproducible if you just kind of published that and instead sort of pressure test that with an independent team so that those are actually documented. And then the idea is that by doing that, you will actually generate more reproducible results that can then more easily be reproduced. So I think it's very interesting. Um, since we started the project for the reproducibility project, Cancer Biology, I do think there's been a lot of efforts that have led to some improvements. So, for example, I do think now it's more common for the original data set to be available. Um, that's very important because when you just publish a summary data set and it's really just a graph, um, a lot of the time you actually can't even use that summary statistical information to generate things like power calculations um, and you certainly can't see the underlying data or any of the pre-exclusion criteria or any data points that were excluded. So it makes it very difficult to design uh, validation experiments. So including the original data sets, there's also been a lot of efforts around how to document the actual reagents that are used. So um, if it's a commercial reagent, you know, not writing things like P53 antibody from cell signaling where there might be 10 antibodies and instead you're actually documenting what's the catalog number of that reagent. That's now a requirement for many journals. That makes it a lot easier to know what reagent was used. And then I think also a focus on repositories, so particularly for materials that are generated. I think this is an area that's often you know, overlooked by funders because it's not very sexy. But actually having repositories where you can store um, and make those reagents available, so for example, animals, plasmids, antibodies, cell lines, you know, all of these tools that are generated, if they're available from repositories like AdGene or Jack's Lab, it makes it, you know, very much easier to be able to obtain those and reproduce the results or build upon the results. It's not just about reproducing them, it's also about being able to build on them and, you know, translate that work. And um, Mark, do you have anything to add on that point about what's worked so far in terms of uh, improving reproducibility? Yeah, those those are those are all great points. I mean, and that's what it comes down to. Um, Elizabeth's last point, right? If 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 no one can build on your work, what was the point? <laughs> it was kind of a waste of time and a waste of money, wasn't it? Even if it is reproducible with some um, colossal effort, but if people don't have the time and the money to to make that colossal effort, it, it, it might as well never have been done at all, right? I guess the only thing I'd like to add is what with IBMD. Um, it is a very common approach throughout engineering. Um, you know, biology does not have a monopoly on difficult uh, problems, difficult samples, right? And so, you know, it is used throughout the engineering world to ensure that when something transitions, it can, it can both be reproduced and it's, and it's robust. And so the question we, we've been asking, and really, you know, this came from the DARPA initiative was if this is best practice throughout so many fields of engineering, why not bioengineering? You know, why why should bioengineering be excluded? And um, from 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 my perspective, I don't think it should be. I think it's actually a very good fit for the field. Was this something that um, when you were transitioning from being a, a physicist into um, looking into cell biology? Um, was this something that you found um, found strange in comparison to those two um, research areas? Was it much more common in, in physics to, to conduct your research in this way? Well, it, it depends if you're talking about uh, exploratory science or, or more of an engineering 
uh, field. And exploratory science, no, because you're not exactly sure. You're sort of reaching out, and you're not exactly sure what's going to happen. But so what's happening in the engineering field are, and more and more funding is, is under that umbrella of bioengineering, is that you're really, you're really uh, trying to achieve a result. And what was so different from physics and the engineering we were doing then is that is the comp, you know, the samples, you know, we, I was studying uh, superconductors and magnetic materials and they were complicated, but uh, they weren't, they weren't alive. They didn't divide. They didn't die if, if I didn't take care of them properly. <laughs> and the protocols were well established. So you could, you could freeze a sample multiple times and then send it around the world and everybody had pretty much the same techniques they were going to apply. So you just, you didn't see this happening so much. And I, I think, I think that's the reason, or if there was a, if there was a replication problem with a very uh, high impact publication, it would usually, it was, it would, there would be a lot of press about it. It would sort of become the, I don't know, the scientific version of a bar brawl or something, you know, and everybody would start <laughs> arguing um, about why this is happening. Where I, I guess I was a little surprised in biology where there's, there's a bit of an acceptance that, yeah, a lot of, a lot of what you read can't be reproduced and you're just going to have to accept that. So that was different. Um, and then going on to the, um, the sort of specifics of those, the IVMV studies, um, what have you found um, through conducting those studies or potentially in other areas of your research that you can do to improve improve reproducibility of the studies? Yeah, it's pretty much everything Elizabeth mentioned, but it's happening in real time. So you get to call the researchers on the phone if you're having a problem, and it's not three years later and they've moved on to another job or, or the cell line doesn't even, can't be found anymore, right? So... The key is that you're doing it, first of all, in real time. And second of all, importantly, you're under the same funding umbrella. So the same program manager, the same funding agency is funding you both and funding you to work together to figure this out. And that's, you know, the, the, the money speaks there because if you're, if part of your task is to work with an IBMD team, then, uh, you know, then replication just becomes normal, right? It just becomes part of the process. It doesn't become this, extra path that has to be accomplished somewhere you know maybe years down the line and uh, elizabeth in, in your work with the reproducibility initiative um what have you found has uh, become particularly particularly helpful or have you found any key themes that carry through those um those research pieces that are particularly reproducible and, and high quality yeah i think um it's really interesting, you know, Mark's experience in contrast to the reproducibility project where we were trying to take published results and also to his point, you know, we weren't funded by the same funders. There was certainly no original expectation by those authors that their work would be replicated. So it just creates a very different environment for the interaction. Um, and that was actually one of the criteria that we coded. We're about to publish the overarching um, article that describes the entire reproducibility project cancer biology um, in the next couple of months. And it's very interesting because, you know, for us, about a third of the authors were actually coded as very unhelpful. Um, and that makes it very challenging to be able to build on their work. So I think that is a key criteria is just overall, is there good collaboration between the scientific teams? 
I think unless the original funder is actually you know committed to promoting reproducibility and ensuring reproducibility of the work they're funding in the way that DARPA has done with the IBMV team, then it will be very challenging to be able to um, actually have that type of collegial interaction to be able to replicate the results. Um, there's many studies not related to my work, but that demonstrate that for the vast majority of the time, when investigators actually reach out to published authors and ask for additional information about their methods, their data, or their reagents, they actually get no response. So um, even for us, we often got responses because of the high-profile nature of the paper and the understanding that the interactions would actually be recorded. Um, so we did get responses, but for more than a third of those responses, those authors were unwilling to help the project and provide information. I just wanted to point out that within the engineering world, IBMV is not looked upon as it's actually looked upon as a positive. I, I think I think you hear the word replication study or reproducibility, and people might think, "Oh, I'm being watched. Someone's trying to mm -hmm. someone's trying to catch me doing something wrong." But in the engineering world, IBMV is a vote of confidence. Um, you know, NASA does not invest its money in IBMV for a space probe because it thinks it's never going to leave the launch pad. It invests in IBMV because it thinks it is going to get to Jupiter, <laughs> and when it gets to Jupiter, it wants it to be operating at the at the highest level possible, and that is what the funding agencies, I think, are. That's in their so, in other words, it's in their best interest to do this because they believe in what they're funding, and from the perspective of the researcher, then yes, if someone's investing in IBMV alongside your work, it's it's really, as I said, a vote of confidence. So it's it's interesting that there's this this very different change in attitude between, for instance, an uh, an, an engineer and then a, a life scientist, um, that they would have those different perspectives. Um, and I suppose you've already touched on it there by saying um, by talking about funders and and how their involvement in reproducibility from the off, but also in the fact that a lot of um, scientists are not helpful in in terms of providing those updates to their protocols or information that's going to help people reproduce their results and their their methods so that kind of leads me on to my next question which is is do you think the scientific establishment is set up to encourage reproducibility um mark if you could just take it from uh take that first question um yeah i think it's i think it's doing uh better for instance the changes that uh elizabeth mentioned you know, are encouraging when you have to submit a data analysis plan, for instance, before when you apply for a grant or when you, all your data has to be available. These are these are all good things. What I guess I'm, I don't really understand is without a project like Elizabeth, I don't really understand the metric and how you tell whether these changes are working or not. You know, I really don't understand <laughs> if a program manager or, you know, ask for these sorts of things beforehand or a funding agency, how then you have to follow it two or three years down the line when someone's actually trying to reproduce it to know if it helped or not. I mean, we assume it does. I, I It certainly can't hurt, that's for sure. And then Elizabeth, in my experience, these things are all, these things are all good. Um, I just, I just, in, from what my experience thus far, being having the same funding agencies funding like an IBD or a replication process in real time, you don't have to wait to learn that. And you get this information sort of you get you have this real time feedback loop going. And that's that's a huge advantage. 
I think that's exactly right, Mark. I think taking the IVMB approach, and I really hope that other funders are looking at, you know, DARPA's approach here and saying, you know, 10% of our funding really should be invested into this because one of the points that I've made is that, you know, the Reproducibility Project Cancer Biology is the largest replication project that has been funded, and it was not funded by a biomedical research institute, right? So it wasn't funded by the NIH, it wasn't funded by the NSF, it was funded by the Laura and John Arnold Foundation. Um, and it's actually very difficult to get funders to do that work. And one of the things that, you know, I've mentioned is I think it's very unscientific to your point that, you know, if this is the only data set we have, like, how can we determine whether any of the interventions that we're trying to make actually work? And I would just say that there are studies that in the research integrity field show that in some cases when research integrity training was performed at research institutes, there was more cases of um, issues with research integrity following that training than before. So there are publications that demonstrate that. That's very depressing, but um, it is it is also you know raising the point that if you don't have any actual scientific data about reproducibility, how can you measure the interventions that you're doing to see whether they actually improve reproducibility? I was, I was just going to agree and, and just add that, I, at least in my case, you know, I, sometimes it sounds as if, you know, we talk about the biological sciences or the biological researchers and somehow as, as if uh, all the programs they're working on are not engineering, but more and more they are engineering. You know, it's not the mm -hmm. same Jupiter, it's the cell line going into the body or the drug going into the body or the, or the biomedical device going into the body, right? And these things, you want to check them and double check them as early and as often as possible, right? So I would, you know, biology is really transforming and into more of an engineering science. And that's a tribute to the success. You know, you become more of an engineering science as, as you learn more about the fundamentals. And so what we're talking about here is beginning for biology to adapt more and more of these best practices that other engineering, more established, I guess, or they've been around, for instance, longer, more engineering disciplines have been using for some time. Yeah, I think that's um, a really good point, Mark. Like, I actually think biology is undergoing a very significant transformation in terms of really moving from a somewhat artisanal process to an industrial process. And we're seeing that with, you know, the increase in automation, robotics, large data sets that are being generated. And these data sets aren't generated generally with, you know, people's hands anymore. They're often generated with, you know, large-scale, you know, robotic systems or profiling systems. And I think that will really improve um, reproducibility as, um, as it does become much more of an engineering process rather than, um, you know, at the moment it is at times still, you know, very much an artisanal process. I had never heard the term um, in our hands until I went into biology. Have you ever seen that in the publication <laughs> where it says, in our hands we get this result? And I remember thinking, what, is, what does that mean? Does that mean if I don't get the result, I just think, you know, I can't I can't do it? I, it's just, I've never seen that before going, but I think that speaks to Elizabeth's of, uh, term of artisanal, right? It, it, mm -hmm. it, it can be very much who's, you know, as you get, towards really down onto the bench, it can, you really need to get into details. The more 
humans are involved, the more you need to detail what's happening. Uh, brilliant. Um, so as, as biology and uh, biological sciences shift more towards that engineering focus, um, just hearing you talk about it there, the, the logical thing to think is that it, the processes will become more more like that engineering focus as is happening with the IVMV labs, for example. Um, but clearly, I think from your uh, conversation there, the, the attitudes within the biological sciences are still very different. You mentioned earlier about people thinking that they're being checked up on as opposed to um, being given the seal of approval when they have these uh, repeat studies and uh, replication studies. So with, with that in mind, this is clearly a, an issue that's bigger than just the researchers. Um, so what can external stakeholders, such as funders, as you've already mentioned, um, buying in early, uh, but other stakeholders within the, um, the, the biological sciences establishment, um, what can they do to, to help bring about change? Yeah, I do think it really does come down to funders. I think funders have the easiest lever to pull in terms of changing the behavior and the reward system. Um, by definition, they determine what research actually gets conducted. They fund it. Um, and I do think it's an area where it's been surprising how little they've actually really put their money where their mouth is related to reproducibility challenges. Um, I mean, I do think the DARPA IVMV program is, is amazing and is a really great initiative. Um, I don't see very many other examples of initiatives like that. A lot of it is really just training or, you know, training. That seems to be what is applied as the solution. And I just don't see that as the solution. Um, Mark, do you have uh, anything else to add to that? No, I, I agree. I'd love to see more IVMD, you know, more funding agencies, more more program managers implementing a IVMD type approach. You know, again, it's it is them saying, I'm choosing you to fund because I have confidence, because I believe your work is going to transition. And I want to make sure when it does, it is as robust, you know, it has it is works with the highest fidelity possible. And I would just add to that, you know, the other stakeholders which we often deal with in, you know, the cancer biology world, which is very much focused on obviously translation of those results into potential therapeutics for cancer patients is industry. So biotech and pharmaceutical companies. And I actually think if you look at how they've addressed this, it's really interesting. Um, they've kind of taken an IVMV approach, Mark, in the sense that you know, they've stopped sort of relying on published literature and instead they really collaborate very early with the academics that they think are doing really interesting work and they're actually involved with the data collection and, and you know, interacting with those researchers as that data is generated. Um, and so I think that's actually, you know, a really interesting shift in how they've addressed the fact that really they couldn't build on the published literature published literature and they have reported that many times so with all of these uh, these changes that you see happening now uh, for instance as you've just mentioned their industry getting involved in um, in the academic research earlier on um, and i suppose they're a, a a group of the uh, the establishment that has uh, more of a, a vested interest in in the work being reproducible as opposed to um, maybe an academic researcher do you believe that we are still going to be in this crisis in five years time I think that um, 
we are seeing a lot of changes which will improve the ability to build on work that's being generated. So some of those are things we already mentioned, like the industrialization of how we actually collect data. Um, and by definition, when things are collected by you know automated systems, they are going to be more reproducible than if they're collected by hand, where there is a lot more uncontrolled variables. Um, so I do think in five years we will be in a much better place. Um, I think it would be great to see, you know, where does academia kind of evolve in that process? Because I do worry a little bit that, you know, if the funders don't start, you know, really trying to solve this problem, so if they don't start doing IBMV funding or um, investing in a lot more of this automation. So, for example, um, we used a format for the reproducibility project called Registered Reports. And I actually love Registered Reports because essentially you have the scientists design the study, um, write up exactly what they're going to do, the full protocols, the data analysis plan, um, you know, all the materials and methods they're going to use. And that actually gets peer reviewed before data collection. And so what that does is it really rewards both the experimental design and the creativity of the scientists rather than, you know, what was the story that you generated from the data that you produced, which is what we kind of get at the moment with our process for publishing. Um, and so it would be great in five years' time if we can start thinking about how can we use automation and, um, you know, really specialised labs that are doing assays that they know are consistently monitored, validated, um, they have the right positive and negative controls, and we promote the creativity and inventiveness of the scientists not to be the collectors of the data, but to design the experiments that should be run. And then, you know, my ideal world, <laughs> which is very much sort of not the current system, is that that data is actually you know, really coming from those instruments and available for everyone to build on and since it is, you know, funded by the taxpayers for a large part. It would be great if that data, instead of kind of being housed inside individual people's labs for when they want to publish it, it instead was really being generated and used as quickly as possible by everybody. Fantastic. Um, and, and Mark, where do you see we'll be um, with this issue in five years' time? Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I think, that, you know, again, we have, there's a dichotomy um, in my eyes in terms of uh, bioengineering versus uh, exploratory biology, because I think what Elizabeth just described is ideal for a, a bioengineering or, you know, sort of confirmatory or a uh, engineering project in which you know what you are trying to design. And so that's exactly right. And that's, that is, really what these engineering programs like IBMD are designed for. So I think as long as there is increased momentum towards these types of solutions, yeah, I think in five years we could see a big difference. Um, then there's uh, exploratory biology, uh, which I, I'm not sure. I haven't, I haven't been, you know, I haven't been working in a replication uh, environment for that field so much. So I think that's a, that's a different question that needs to be asked. Okay, fantastic. Um, well, those are all of my questions. Um, thank you very much, Mark and Elizabeth, for joining me on the podcast. It's been absolutely fantastic to speak to you. Great, thank, thank you, you for having us. Enjoyed it. If you have been interested by the theme of reproducibility and would like to find out more, 
you can check out the Biotechniques in Focus on Reproducibility live online, which contains many more materials and is currently live at www.biotechniques.com. You can find previous episodes either on-site or on Acast, Spotify and Apple Podcasts by searching Talking Techniques. Thank you for listening. Stay safe and goodbye.